how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Michael Jacobs and Joshua Weinstein met on the festival circuit in 2008 where both were presenting original documentaries. Most recently, they teamed up for Marvel's documentary, Behind the Mask. The premise? Meet the writers and artists behind characters like Black Panther, Miles Morales, Miss Marvel, Luke Cage, the X-Men, Captain Marvel, and many other characters in the Marvel Universe, highlighting their impact on pop culture and media. In this interview, the duo talk about moving from film to digital, working with Barry Jenkins, shooting Blackballed for Quibi, how budgets change a documentary, and how to be ethical as a documentary filmmaker. You know, Josh and I actually met on the festival circuit um, back in 2008. Is that right, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> <Which> <laughs> a couple is, years ago. Yeah, that sounds like a weird number to be thrown around, 2008. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we... Um, we had met on the festival circuit. Um, I made a, a verite documentary about this Pentecostal minister who tried to make a, a biblical sci-fi movie. And, um, and I put this film together as my first film and, um, and Josh had made his first documentary flying on one engine. And um, we just had, you know, a mutual affinity for each other's work and just de developed a friendship around that, you know, seeing each other at festivals and, you know, sharing cuts and, and talking about filmmaking. And, um, and eventually that led to, um, to getting an opportunity to work together. Yeah, it was fun. Cause back in like the, the late aughts, like, I think Mike, like one South by in 07, you know, there was something about what was happening in indie film. And, and he started a company with, with, with Barry Jenkins, you know, and, and, and me and, and Barry had our first films at South by that year in 08. So kind of like a really, incredible time where a lot of young people in American indie films were just starting out and um and it just felt like anything was possible and obviously as we got older <laughs> possibility you know you, you bang yourself into the, the wall a little bit but um it's uh it was a really exciting time to, to I think it's also the the how DV started like all our projects were um 
on like the first DV camera. I mean, not the first, but the DV was like a huge thing to democratize filmmaking. And, you know, when I went to, I finished undergrad in 05 and like, at that point, people were like, you have to shoot Super 16, you have to shoot 16, 16, 16. And I love shooting 16, but like, you know, how do you raise $30,000 for film stock? You know, for, for a film, it's really hard when you could buy a DVX 100 for, for $3,000. And, you know, for $5 an hour, you can like make something. In, I mean, that's pretty incredible. You know, you were, was, ne was never able to before because that was like, the DVX 100, I think, was a game changer because it was like the tw first 24p camera, which is really techy in the weeds. But all of a sudden, like people can make really good-looking films that that didn't cost like you know you didn't have to mortgage your house to make them. Yeah, I mean that's exactly the the reason why I was able <laughs> to make Audience of One was because I could afford the camera and the tape stock, the DV tape stock, and I was able to shoot everything myself. And I mounted a, a microphone on top of the camera, and I, I was able to run sound myself. So I was really sort of a true one-man band operation and then like josh said i got to the festivals and i met all these other you know young indie makers who had either uh, you know similar one man or one woman band operations or were just you know really small footprint film production on dv and it was this immediate bond and, and sense of you know community um and that just led to these relationships and these desires to collaborate around you know just making work so as you guys have kind of moved to like working for ESPN, working for Marvel, that type of thing, what are some of the different changes from like those first few movies? Like if what, what separates like, you know, 10 grand, 50 grand, hundred thousand dollars. Like I imagine the last step might be animation or something like that, but what are kind of the, the growing processes, I guess, of how much money you can raise for a particular subject? Uh, do you want to talk about? I mean, can you talk about black? Well, no, no. I was saying more that like I think blackball is an example of like what money can do. And I don't, I don't know if you can talk about the budget, but blackball was a project we did for Quibi, you know, and um, and it was amazing because we got to have like a five-person G&E crew, and we got to um, you know rent out basketball courts for every interview, and we got to use like the latest greatest camera and lenses. So like. And we got to have the best colorist work on it. So I think Blackballed is an amazing project that we got to do. I mean, it would have just been different, you know, if we didn't have all the resources at hand, you know, to, to do it that way. Um, so, yes, I think, and Mike can talk more because you know, as a director, he has you know, people breathing down his neck more. But, and obviously people breathe down my neck too, but it just allows you to do, obviously having money allows you to do, you know, get as close to what you want to do as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting, you know, question, and especially in documentary where we're so used to getting away with, with so little, right? And we're really forced to make those harder choices around, you know, how we're going to spend whatever money we're being given or we're raising. And I think it, you know, it varies project to project. Um, you know, you're always hustling, though, and you're always trying to, you know, you're always bumping up against um, production realities that just don't match either your vision or your desire or just the number of days you want to shoot. And I think, like, you know, particularly when I transitioned to making the, you know, ESPN 30 for 30s, like, while there was some money, there there wasn't a lot, you know. And so it was really 
and yet I also saw it as this opportunity um, to create work that was going to get broadcast and not just going to have to rely on, you know, the indie ecosystem of festivals and hoping for an acquisition or an opportunity to showcase the work somewhere else or use it as a calling card. This really was going to be an opportunity to make something that was going to get out there. And so while the budgets were limited for those 30 for 30s, I kind of went all out and really put a ton of thought and, and as much craft and as much pushing of the, you know, budgets as, as would allow. And then, you know, it didn't come back right away, but then eventually it did come back with an opportunity like we got to do Quibi or like we got from Disney Plus to do the Marvel film where there was a little bit more money and where we could do things that were a little bit larger in scope and where, you know, like Josh said, we could have larger crews to do more craft and scene design and, and, you know, focus more on the things that as filmmakers we wanted to do just in order to, you know, grow, you know, into uh, just a, a, a larger, bigger vision, even if it's an interview frame or even if it's, you know, figuring out different ways to be creative within the confines of, of documentary. And I, and I think also the biggest thing is just like, production design, which means, you know, scouting locations for the for your interviews is something that so much documentary people just think, oh, we'll shoot wherever it is. But you know, but but what a location has says so much about your characters and can do a lot of the storytelling for you, which is something that like I've been grateful to work with Mike the, that he understands the importance of that. So imagine as you've kind of, you know, uh, move to these bigger projects it's easier it's easier to have the credibility to get the bigger you know subjects that type of thing but if you guys are giving advice for someone who's making their first or maybe their second documentary how do you kind of approach the subject at first are you asking like i want to talk to you about this i'd like to talk to you three or four times do you always book it in one session like what are some of those behind the scenes logistics like that i mean i think it, it varies subject to subject and person to person just based on um, how sensitive the storytelling might be or how personal, you know, the filmmaking might be in relationship to, you know, this person's lived experience, or even if it's, you know, if it's a celebrity, of course, then you're thinking about, you know, their profile and, and how you want to go about approaching them. But, you know, it starts with, you know, a, a, a outreach and conversation based on, you know, being as upfront and transparent at the outset is, is always, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to say, but hard to do right, where you're sort of asking for an opportunity for someone to share their life or open up or, or sit for an interview um, and wanting to, you know, grant them that space and be protective of that space, but then also have your own agenda for needing to make your film and how you're going to shape narrative or make creative choices, you know, around this person's life story. So it's delicate, you know, and it takes, it takes nuance. Um, it takes sort of a, an interpersonal skill set that can be developed. I mean, especially for first and second time filmmakers, there's just so much excitement around getting out there and making something that sometimes we forget the nuance of, of communication around intentions, um, you know, can be, can be really important to ultimately, getting that sweet spot, sweet spot between access, right? Being so important to documentary, but then also, you know, staying true to your vision as a, as a filmmaker to get what you need in order to, to tell the story and, and, may, and make sort of creative decisions that are in the best interest of the film, maybe not always in the best interest of the subject. 
Yeah, I, I think Mike nailed it on the head. Access is everything. And I just think about why I wanted to start making films, and that was the um, Maisel brothers. And, and they were the first ones who, I mean, them and Richard Leacock and, um, and D.A. Pennybaker, they go out and they had amazing access. It was the Beatles' first trip to America. It was JFK running his primary. And one of my favorite films is called Salesman, which is kind of like a, a Willie Loman kind of look at, at, at what, what Bible salesman in Florida. But the thing is, is that over the years, when I see the best new docs come out is because they have insane access. A Cutie and the Boxer or, or Overnighters, just two of, in the recent decade that I've really loved. And, and I just think that, like, you know, the one thing you can't, like, you know, in fiction films, obviously, anything you imagine can exist on screen. But in docs, you know, it's only what you have access to exists on screen. So the the films that you just feel are limited are the ones that, that just never got, you know, as intimate as as they could. I mean, and it's not their fault. You know, some subjects will only go, will only let you go so intimate. And if that's the case, part of the filmmaking knowledge is like, when do you give up? <laughs> when do you start a film and realize, you know what, maybe I should stop making that film. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I've definitely had a, had a few of them where I'll go out for a day just to test the waters, and then you're like, ah, I guess that's not going to happen. <laughs> not gonna so happen. true. So true. Because, you know, we think of these people, you know, you're kind of casting, right? It is it is a casting process, and sometimes, you know, the person that you need to to pin your, your hopes on as far as being that character, even if you get access, doesn't always, you know, deliver from either a storytelling standpoint or you know, they're just different on camera than they were on paper. And, and so there are a lot of false starts, you know, for documentary. And, you know, you, instinctually, you kind of know when you have gold. So like Josh was saying, I mean, access is everything, but you, you also need to be very, um, you know, really thoughtful and, and almost skeptical to, to really make sure that can I pin a film on this person's shoulders? Is there enough here for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, a feature um, that comes from both uh, instincts and then experience, um, you know, in, in making, you know, documentary. And then the, the, mo- the, the, crazy, the hardest part is the morality of it all that like, you know, in some ways our living is based off someone else's real life. And, and, and it's honestly, it's a difficult equation as why I've, you know, actually taken a step back from directing documentaries because it's hard for, or, or, or working with Mike, I, mean, I love working with Mike and I love the interview driven pieces because it's not the same, but with the Verite films, which I really love, it's like often people are living life in death situations, you know, or, or they have economic hardships or whatever hardships you're dealing with, like you're filming them at the most difficult moments of, of their lives. And like, by you being there with the camera, are you, are, are you hurting them in some small way? So it, I don't know, for me, I, I've been kept up at night, but by how being there with the camera has affected my subjects. Oh, 100%. It's a very, it's a very difficult relationship dynamic and it, and it can feel, it can very quickly turn from a celebration of someone's life to to feeling exploitive or feeling manipulative. And and that's, that's uncomfortable. And that's, that's what we have to sort of shoulder as makers, um, especially in Verite projects. Um, But, but even sometimes in the sit down interview projects, because someone is willing to be vulnerable and what are you, you know, it's one thing to hold that space and, and be vulnerable with them and, and support them in the interview environment. But then you get to the edit where you have to make storytelling decisions. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that, that I think is often, you know, overlooked or maybe, I don't know, not, not thought of when, when folks are just watching, you know, documentary, especially as documentaries blown up in the last 
couple of years in streaming, I mean, there's just so much documentary work out there and the ethics and the gray areas are, are not really a part of that conversation and it is ever present. Is there anything else behind the scenes about the pre-interview? Like I imagine you have to say that, you know, we may not even use this. Is How do you kind of phrase something like that? <laughs> That's such a good question because, yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to that, like, I'm I'm going to be transparent and I'm going to be open and honest, but I also need to protect my process. I need to protect storytelling. I need to, you know, ultimately advocate for an audience here and in, in going on this journey and, and understanding and appreciating this story that very rarely is as good as, you know, a one sit down hour long conversation in real time, right? Like we have to make editorial choices and we have to cut things out and we have to sculpt narrative out of what people share with us or what people let us film. Um, yeah, I, I, more often than not, especially as I've gotten older and, and more comfortable with the role, I do tell people like, you know, I'm here to be a really good listener and to try to ask good questions and to, to share this story. Um, you know, but we're also going to have to, you know, make choices and not everything that you share here today will, will make it into the final film. And, and most people are getting so savvy because there is so much documentary out there and there is the, we're a generation past reality TV that there's just kind of a little bit more. And with social media, there's kind of an awareness of, of media in a way that's maybe different from when Josh and I first started making documentaries, um, you know, a while ago that, I think people's expectations are a little bit more in tune with um, some of the creative choices that makers have to make. Um, but it can be a weird conversation. I've never really had it backfire, but I have definitely had subjects, you know, wonder why after spending two hours with them, they're only in the film for, you know, two and a half minutes. But the other funny thing you say about where we are now is that, yes, people are more aware of the camera. But in fact, I feel it's actually harder on us for audiences because when you watch, you know, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, it's like the greatest moments of life are being captured there all the time. So our <laughs> films now have to be way better because <laughs> everyday life is more interesting than, than what we used to provide. Oh, uh, it's so true. What are some of the decisions that you have to make later in the process? Like I would imagine if, if, if people don't talk in sound bites, you might have to put in a narrator or something like that. What are some of those things that come like in the editing process? if we do our jobs right and, and the project not designed to have a narrator, then, you know, it is about, you know, the, the, the craft of the interview and, you know, doing whatever we can when we sit down with a subject to ensure that they don't, they don't just give us, you know, sound bites that are true to their experience, but they also help provide narrative structure and then transitions. Um, but then of course you get into the edit and, you know, you have to make some of those transitions on your own. And so archival is of course always, you know, a really helpful tool for dropping in and out of, of interview um, material. And then, yeah, I, I've yet to use a narrator. Actually my next project will have a narrator. And so it will be a, a, an interesting experience for me to design, you know, some of the storytelling, knowing that we'll have a narrator, you know, help us out of any jams we get in um, during the editing process. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you also get um, very creative with transitions that feel on paper disparate, but can be connected through, you know, either that additional soundbite or sometimes it's, it's something subtle, um, you know, just a music, a music cue can sometimes help motivate a transition that maybe wasn't working perfectly again on paper as a piece of script. 
Um, so you just, you, you try to apply different, you know, tricks of the trade in order to ensure that you have these transitions that your audience, you know, doesn't call you out on. Um, but you get stuck sometimes for sure. But then there's also just like, and this is used in fiction as well, but you know, Frankenbiting is just the term that I think it's probably a reality TV term, but it's like, you know, and this is the dark arts of editing. It's just like you're, you are just, you know, taking the, besides just taking the ums and ahs out of inarticulate people, you could also just rearrange what they're saying or connect two sentences that weren't actually connected to make something that, that is more articulate. And I, I, Mike, how do you, how, uh, what's well, the ethics of that for you? No, you know, in a weird way, I have less of an ethical quandary with that than what you brought up earlier, Josh. Like I, I do uh, have a harder time sleeping at night in the way I feel responsible for a subject in the more exploitive sense. I have never had a subject talk about or, or be concerned with or bring up any, you know, misrepresentation on what they said, um, because the Frankenbiting usually is about, you know, seamless communication, you know, natural conversation flow, or, or really actually a solve for natural conversation flow, just being concise. And I think a lot of times subjects are appreciative of making them sound concise to the point where they often forget how they really said it. And so, you know, and again, good documentary filmmakers are not going to take dramatic leaps when they do that. That dark arts is usually a, a tool for, you know, seamless cohesion and not necessarily, you know, manipulation. It's like Mary Manhart taught me about that. And she's this amazing editor who, um, what was the, the oh, Making a Murderer she worked on? She's worked on so many things over the last 20, 30 years. And she told me early on when, when I worked with her like 15, 16 years ago, she said, you know, sometimes she's done that where people come up to her afterwards and they're like, wow, you really made my dad sound great in that doc. He never sounds so eloquent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. It really is. It can be incredibly helpful. It'd be helpful for me if someone went, you know, <laughs> who knows what we're going to do with this, you know, podcast. It'll probably make Josh and I sound way better than, way better than we're <laughs> We <on>. hope so. <laughs> Tell me about this latest project. How did you guys get involved with Behind the Mask? So, yeah, so that one came about... Um, it was the executives actually from the ESPN documentaries. Uh, you know, one of the top executives at ESPN 30 for 30 had moved over to Marvel and they were just starting to put together, you know, some film projects that they knew were going to ultimately end up on Disney plus. And they were looking for outsiders, you know, and, and when I say that, I mean, they were looking for comic book outsiders for people that could, could tell stories that were, you know, a look inside you know, comic book, comic book narrative, comic book creation, but not, but, but having that sense of, um, you know, ha having a sense of, of, you know, separation in order to not get bogged down in the density, especially with the old comic books, right? There are 40, 50 years of, you know, thousands upon thousands of issues of comics that any one storyline, you know, somebody who's really steeped in it could kind of get lost in it. They wanted to make sure that there was a little bit of somebody coming from the outside and, and doing some storytelling that, that could maybe appeal to audiences above and beyond just comic book fans. And so the folks at, at Disney plus, you know, came to me and, and said, Hey, you know, do you want to pitch on this? We were trying to figure out a way to, to talk about, identity within comics and you know we think you'd be a great fit having done most recently at the time a couple of these 30 for 30s that were based on you know sort of intersectionality and, and using sports as a window into 
pop culture and, and a window into these conversations about race or gender. And, and so it was just a, a transition of instead of using sports, we're now using, you know, comic books with the same sort of exploratory storytelling. And, um, and I thought of Josh right away um, to, to be a great collaborator, both because the thing about Josh, right, is he's such a, an, an awesome cinematographer and, you know, has such a strong sense of, you know, a visual palette in which he brings to any project. Um, but he's also a director and a writer in his own right. And so it's having, you know, that additional collaborator on set that I just find really useful, um, especially with, with something that like, I really knew next to nothing about comics when I started this. And so I, I sort of brought a lot of anxiety around that and I needed just support, support in, Hey, am I asking, are these questions making sense? Because it is so dense, you know, any single comic book piece of story is so dense and you can so quickly find yourself, um, you know, trapped in just talking about a couple of themes or storylines within the comics. And I, I wanted to avoid that, but not insult the subjects and not insult, you know, all of the reverence I was learning to have for these, you know, comic book creators. So having Josh there, just sort of tracking along with the interviews, in addition to designing the frames, was was pretty vital. And, and, oh, thanks, Mike. And, and that was funny thing is for me, like I just grew up with comic books because my grandpa had a toy store in Brooklyn that, that I helped at it sometimes, and you know he had like Action Comics one. I mean, I, I mean it was stolen by the time I, I, I came around. My my dad had Amazing Spider-Man one in our house. It was a really beat up copy of it. So. You know, and I love actually one of my, and being with DMC in the room and hearing the interview said everything when he was talking about how, you know, Marvel was about New York City and about how, like, these characters are really in Queens. And, and that, that meant something. Absolutely. You know, Josh is a very New York guy, you know, and Marvel is a very New York company. And then this, this combination of, like, hip-hop and culture and you know identity all kind of wrapped into that marvel thing and and these early you know jewish comic book creators you know i have to go back a, a couple generations and i grew up in colorado but my you know my grandparents were you know new york city folks who i think could could relate to that immigrant experience and that assimilation experience that certainly you know, resonated for me once I learned more about these, you know, early comic book creators and how a lot of them were Jews who were, you know, grappling with their own assimilation, you know, and ultimately creating assimilation fantasies, you know, w which I found really fascinating. And, and Josh being a fellow, you know, New York Jew was like a, a great, a great partner in, um, in helping to just appreciate that at the nuance level, you know, and then to have subjects like DMC just take that and, and make it, his own experience and his, in his New York identity story and his New York assimilation story. Um, it, it was pretty special. But just a deep cut for people who are fascinated by all this, you have to read um, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon because it's the fictional account of, of two Jews who invented Superman, basically. And um, it goes over like a, a, life, a lifetime of their existence and the twists and turns. It's it just, just an epic story about, about um, the immigration assimilation story in New York. How, so, so this is like a very, um, you know, deep story that some other companies might kind of sweep this stuff under the rug a bit. I mean, it's about racism, possibly like, you know, errors or misconception early in the comic book industry. What kind of led to Marvel wanting to do this? I mean, obviously they're showing more diversity in their new movies, the same with like the Star Wars franchise, which is sort of connected now. But wh why kind of tackle this now? What led to this story being about the diversity and some of those things. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think like, you know, when Marvel first brought this my way, I would just sort of assume that this was going to be, you know, an opportunity for them to kind of pat themselves on the back and, and, you know, be a part of, you know, this conversation about race in a healthy, you know, like way that showed them in such a great light. And yes, on the one hand, it, it is a little self-congratulatory, but it's so earned, you know, and I think that I realized how earned it was when I started to learn more about the, the choices they made for the sake of, of creativity, you know, being paramount for the sake of supporting underrepresented voices. We talk about, you know, these Jewish immigrants who were drawn to comics and to comic book characters. But then we also talk about this next generation, you know, you know, creators of color who were early on at Marvel, you know, in the 60s and 70s, who were part of the wave of, of consciousness around civil rights and were able to integrate that into the storylines. You know, they should be commended for that type of, of creative expression. And then last but not least, we, they, you know, I told them when I took the, the project that like, I'm going to ask some difficult questions about the times that Marvel didn't get this right, you know, and my hope is, is that in the edit, you allow us to explore those threads and to allow some of these creators, you know, near and dear to Marvel and some folks that are just cultural commentators outside Marvel who follow, you know, comic book pop culture and creation to just speak to some of these moments in Marvel's history where maybe they weren't the best at representation, or maybe they didn't, you know, write the best storyline on the lived experience. Um, and they owned up to that. And, and I found that they were willing to, to do that and to call themselves out and not sweep it under, under the rug for the sake of, you know, just being authentic. And, you know, it's an overused word, but I think it's something that is really, you know, something that I, I feel happy about. We were able to make, work in the film and that you know ultimately they they celebrated as well even if it wasn't there was a little bit more of the warts and all so you mentioned uh run dmc in this run dmc is in this movie like how does something like that happen does he publicly talk about marvel somewhere like how do some of these like different celebrities come in that are not normally associated with the subject matter yeah that was awesome i mean you know like Josh was saying, you know, we, we looked outside comics and Michael Chabon, a great example of, you know, ultimately the schedule didn't work um, to get him in uh, for an interview. But I knew I wanted to have some outside voices, you know, who were comic book appreciators and, you know, other artists. And I knew that he had been influenced by comics. But when I spoke to the folks at Marvel and had him on our early list as a potential subject, they said, hey, you know, what's amazing about him is he actually is a comic book creator in his own right now and they sent me a, a comic book that he had created and i was just blown away it's called dmc and it's his own imprint but the some of the folks that you know did the artistry on it and and you know wrote the forward on it were other folks that were going to sit down and do interviews with us and so i just said hey can, can we go out to him and, and see if he would want to sit for an interview and he said yes right away and um and was just you know, as you can see in the film, I mean, unfortunately we had to cut a lot out because he was just, he was fantastic. You know, he gave us an hour and a half worth of just such strong personal storytelling. And, you know, he hit all of our thematic beats and, you know, I was just so fortunate to have someone like him that really expanded, you know, the understanding and appreciation for what these comics, you know, represent to different communities of people, you know, here's this kid who kind of created his own identity 
based on comic books, um, you know, and became one of the greatest rappers of all time um, in using that identity uh, through hip hop. And it was just one of those perfect uh, thematic, you know, connections. And, um, you know, and, and the process for that is, you know, you always reach out to these celebrities and you just hope they say yes. And then when they do say yes, you hope they give you something more than just a vanity project or, you know, something that, you know, is them just speaking about, you know, their own life and career separate from the story you're trying to tell. And he's a prime example of a celebrity subject who's such a decent person, who's passionate about, you know, in this case, comic books. And um, and we were, you know, rewarded by his willingness to, to share and, and give an interview. And I love most about the interview, Mike, was just like, it just went against your stereotypes of what hip hop is. <laughs> Here's, the, I mean, cause, again, from Hollis Queens, and and he's like, no, I'm more, I'm more influenced by by being a superhero in, in my rapping than I am about you know all the cliches we hear about what hip hip hop is. And, and so that so that was to me was really um, insightful in that interview. Yeah, I can't hear his lyrics now, you know, or read his lyrics without thinking of superhero identity construct within within how he talks about himself and it all makes so much sense you know it's it's kind of perfect and just last question so you guys mentioned you met in 2008 but if you guys are starting as a team or individually today how would you start would you still approach festivals uh maybe like covid quarantine aside but would you still approach festivals would you go to youtube what would be where would you start today with a documentary idea oh man <laughs> it is yeah it's so tough because on the one hand, right, there are more opportunities to get your work out there than there ever were when, when Josh and I started out. And yet, at the same time, that, that makes it kind of diluted, you know, and like a little bit harder to know, like, what the right move is. I still think that festivals, when they come back to life, especially the, the top-tier festivals, the Sundance's, South Bys, Tribeca's, and some of these international festivals, they will still be, you know, the the first gatekeepers and the arbiters of of important work being, you know, acknowledged and screened. And I think that a, a lot of first time or second time, or I mean, Jesus, even those of us who are still, you know, making whatever we can, whenever we can, we'll still rely on the festival ecosystem for, you know, the support of our work, the introduction of our work, um, you know, that indoctrination of, of quality. I think that's still really important. And that's something that YouTube can't do. I mean, yes, YouTube, you can just then all of a sudden take it from an audience of a couple hundred people at a festival and all of a sudden reach thousands of people. But I would, you know, it, it's a little bit more haphazard and random, you know? And so I, I think that the festivals certainly still serve an important function um, in this ecosystem. But I also know a lot of filmmakers who are trying to, you know, bypass the festivals by just going straight to the streamers who do have money and who are willing to support first and second time filmmakers, which is incredibly exciting. And the streamers, you know, are becoming like a really powerful player for, for independent filmmaking, especially in documentary in a way that I never really imagined. And so there's a lot to be said for um, making work that you just put out there and you hope you can get recognized, whether it's at a festival or through a Vimeo staff pick or some other, you know, digital you know, way of, of getting it in front of a potential, you know, executive at a streamer that's say ready and willing to, to give you a shot. But I would argue, I mean, Josh, you chime in, but I would argue still a lot of those gatekeepers at the streaming companies are still looking to the festivals to sort of identify talent and quality. 
Um, so I, I still think that has to be a part of the calculus in making a first project. Well, well, it's one thing that, I mean, I just think is important today is, you know, finding your voice as a storyteller, you know, and, and so what does that mean? It means like whoever your friends are, you, you, um, you know, from your neighborhood or college or, or whatever sort of artistic community you're in, it's like, just get together and make work, you know, and, and learn through failing, you know, because I failed a lot of projects that uh, I, I've, I failed at, but I learned something from, from making them. And then, you know, it's just annoying and expensive to like wait for the festival. So, you know, the Vimeo staff picks and, and all this, like it really, there was, there's great audiences now and great communities you can have because filmmaking, unfortunately, it's not like sculpture, still photography or fine art, like you need a team of people to work with you. And when you're starting out, you don't have money to pay this team. So, you know, by finding like-minded people, whether it be at a festival, whether it be on, on online or whether it be like, you know, in, in your local community access TV station, just important just to, to start working with people and start making things. Because as Brock, you know, you've been to LA for a while, you get out to LA or New York and it's easy just to spend years of your life getting meetings and writing pictures and never making a thing. And, and, and we, we're all um, have fallen prey to that, but really it's like, but as soon as you make something and you share it online, like people get excited about you and then the calls start coming in. So I think you have no excuse. Now everyone has a cell phone. You can, you can make, as long as you have a voice, as long as you are truthful to yourself and you're saying something that only you can say, I think you, you have to just make it. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.